Welcome to the Coach Steve Clark Show, where he will encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents who will in turn motivate and help others to promote the great game of tennis, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, Steve Clark. Hello, everyone. This is Steve Clark, and thanks so much for tuning into the show. You're going to enjoy today um, as we talk with not only a phenomenal coach and one of the most respected leaders in professional tennis, but one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And that's Craig Tiley, CEO of Tennis Australia and director of the Australian Open. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a variety of things, but uh, as always, uh, the, the show relates to parents, parents, players, and coaches, so they all benefit. Um, but particularly today with uh, respect to youth, uh, college, and the pros, Tennis Australia, and the Australian Open. But also we're going to get into leadership, um, because Craig has uh, clearly demonstrated an extremely high level of that, and it would be great to glean from that. But let me uh, first tell you a bit about uh, Craig. Craig began tennis at 12 years old. He excelled in the juniors in South Africa and played collegiately. Uh, there, and uh, if I blow this name, Craig, it's Stellenbosch. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> where he uh, earned his B.A. in economics. Um, and uh, after graduating and serving compulsory military service in South Africa, he moved to the U.S. and got his master's in kinesiology at the University of Texas, Tyler. Um, then he assumed the coaching duties as uh, the captain of South Africa for the Davis Cup, which is really awesome, and remained in that position about 2001. Um, in 1993, he was named the head coach at Illinois, and 10 years later, Craig led the Illinois men's tennis team to the ITA National Indoor Championships in 2003 and 4, and reached the championship match three other times in 1998, 99, and 2002. He led Illinois to a crazy 32-0 record and a men's tennis championship in 2003, earning his second Wilson ITA Division I National Coach of the Year uh, award. And uh, he also had the record for the longest consecutive win streak in NCAA history at 64 matches, spanning from their first uh, match of the 2002-2003 season um, and it ended in the uh, 2004 uh, National Championships. Craig now serves as the CEO of Tennis Australia, which is the governing body that oversees tennis in Australia, and accordingly serves as the uh, director of the Australian Open, which is arguably um, the... F- greatest fan-friendly slam, and uh, I know um, uh, probably the favorite, if not one of the most favorite, uh, tournaments uh, of the pros out on tour, um, largely because of what uh, Craig and his, uh, he would say, everybody that's involved does there. So, Craig, uh, welcome, and how are you? Good, thanks, Steve. I I remember the days of you at UCI, and I was trying to Make a go of it at uh, the University of Illinois. I had no clue what I was doing, but uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was a fun journey. Well, in fact, uh, we're going to talk about that a little later uh, because that's it's an amazing thing what you did uh, there. Um, in, in fact, we'll just segue into the playing here. But Craig, you've done you know amazing things as a coach, and you're quite humble about it. And I, I remember listening to a, there was a video that was I don't know how long it was, but a young gentleman was asking you some questions, particularly I think from a business aspect. And you mentioned you had had some success as a coach, which is a complete understatement. And uh, but one thing that is not discussed much, you know, if you kind of look things up, but you as a player, 
And one of the things I want to do is reach out to the, uh, the young listeners out there, the aspiring juniors and those maybe segueing into the college ranks or even from college to the pros. Can you uh, share a little bit about your junior experience? What was uh, what was it like, you know, a kid playing down there in South Africa? I've had some players from there. And how did you start? Did you grow up on hitting on a wall? Things like that. How, tell us a little bit about that. Well, it, it, it's funny you say that because I, I did. I actually I did grow up on hitting on a wall. And, um, and for some reason, I, I started pretty late because I was with a family. We moved around with them and uh, we um, – uh, and when I was I was introduced to the game by a great uncle um, and by a school tennis coach, and they both had a deep passion for the game. and And uh, you're lucky when you get when you get uh, when you meet people that love love the game, you you pick up that love for it. and And uh, and I just uh, fell into it. And it was was not many places to play, and um, but there was a wall. It could be any wall. It could be a wall against the side of the garage or. Um, a wall sitting out in the middle of nowhere, and, uh, and it was always a great hitting partner. And, and the one thing about a wall, it never spoke back to you, and it always <laughs> hit the ball back to you, and uh, and uh, you could never beat it. Um, and I used to, you know, I grew up playing these imaginary matches and uh, against the wall. And, um, and I, if I if I knew then what I know now, I I would have I would have never tried to just hit the ball just above the line on the wall. I would have put the I would have put that line. Oh, probably about you know quite a few feet higher. Uh, then I probably would have learned to have good topspin on both sides, getting it over that line. So often you see these walls out there, and they've got the line the same height as the net, but the ball never travels the same height as the net when you're really playing on the game. It travels much higher than that. So, so that line should be a lot higher. So that I would change. But yeah, it was great. It was um, I I just was lucky to be around people that loved the game and to have a family that didn't get involved. That they just they my parents both provided a pathway and my dad used to say to us, just you know, choose whatever you want to choose, just go out and do the best that you can. And um, we were four kids, so there's a lot of sibling rivalry, but um, but that's what we all did, all in different careers, different pathways. And I and I think it's, you know, I think it's, it is challenging now with, um, you know, with the role of parents. I think that, I, I do think that the parents have a critical role to play um, in a player's opportunity and development, and but I think it needs to be clearly understood what that role is, and, and it's always important being a parent first. And I was lucky my parents understood that, but being a parent first, and then being being an, an advisor and a mature confidant and a and a mentor and a guide a second. Um, but I think any time a parent makes an attempt to vicariously live through their child's success. Uh, they're gonna, there's gonna be shortcuts and there's gonna be some shortfalls. So, you know, the top players in the world, there is one common element. They all have, they all have one or two parents um, that uh, that uh, provided that opportunity and were very supportive. In many cases, gave up their own careers to be supportive. But, but I think sometimes that does come at a cost because you've, you've got to be pretty much pretty pretty guaranteed that you're gonna be that your 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 daughter or your son's gonna be great. But I think the balance is important. The best um, I've spent a lot of time with Roger Federer's parents, and I've known him for a long time, and his parents for a long time, and and uh, lovely people, well balanced, and they understood about providing him with with the pathway of opportunity. Wow, that's uh, that's great advice. I, you know, for me, I'm a parent coach, so half the time I'm when I'm doing these 
shows with people, um, you know, the finger points back out, you know, back to me where it's I got to do both roles and I got to learn how to balance that. And some sometimes I trip, sometimes, I, <laughs> you know, so it's yeah. it's a fine balance, you know, because you're you're right. You have to be parent first, and that's uh, but then you have to, uh, you know, be the the coach and you got to be the tough guy and you know it's, it's uh one thing i'll say maybe you can tune in on this because you've probably seen a boatload of parent coaches where a lot of times i try and farm my kids off as much as possible um to people that i trust and and know that they have a different maybe a different voice and then they hear maybe the same thing something a little different and uh but you got to be willing to kind of do that i mean that's 100 percent right i mean i I always remind people on the men's side of the game the last 12 years, there's only seven players that have won a Grand Slam title. So that's over a 12-year span. So uh, to be the to be at the top of the tree is, uh, you know, it's probably easier finding a needle in a haystack. Um, it's a it's a very it's a very difficult thing to do. However, the great thing about our game is a lifetime of opportunity. Um, you, like me, have been rewarded by having coaching careers. Um, I have had an administrative career now as well. Um, and uh, there's, there's college. I mean, there, there is no opportunity, better opportunity anywhere in the world other than the United States for college tennis. Um, you know, I think 4,000 colleges in the U.S. and plenty of college scholarship opportunities and playing opportunities, socialization opportunities. That's a magnificent pathway. And then there's some great players from college that have gone on and done some magnificent things. I, I've been lucky to coach a few of them, and... Um, and I, I'm always proud, and, and the West Coast of the U.S. has always done particularly well with that. Uh, in the, uh, the the USC, UCLA, uh, Stanford, Harvard, all the other great schools as well. But um, you know they've produced some some great players. So there's so there's, there's there's plenty of pathway opportunities. I think parents would generally have the attitude to say, okay, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and provide my daughter, my son, the best possible opportunities that we have the means to do. And uh, but I'm I'm not. I'm going to try and avoid being their coach. I'm going to be their, as I said, their mentor, their guide, or their, um, and and get other people to do that work. Get the experts to do that work. In your case, like in my case, I have three young kids. You know, we we have some skill coaching, and you got to balance like, you know, is it, is that a skill you want to mix with parenting, um, or not? And if that is the case, how you how do you divide it? And it's uh, and it's hard it's hard to mix it. I mean, I left the house this morning, and my daughter's doing a cross country race this morning I said uh, go and have a great time do the best you can and make sure you win it I thought oh boy better be careful don't add that last bit <laughs> <in."> <laughs> yeah that's uh, well you know uh, I have a phrase it's uh, you know if, if uh, you know obviously you and I would agree I think it's process over product you know you get the product if you if you really put in the process um, you know also if you if you if you always give your best, you sometimes play your best, and you one time be the best. The key is actually giving your best 100% of the time, and that's that's where it, it's tough. And if you can do that, everything else falls into place, you know. So uh, it's true about life. It absolutely is yeah. true about life. I mean, I, I don't have any secrets on anything, uh, and there's one thing that I know uh, that's always worked for me: is hard work pays off, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, and mm -hmm. consistent commitment. Because um, you and every day is a building block to tomorrow, um, and just remember those few things, and you'll be fine. That's good advice, right there, folks. Every day is a building block for tomorrow, and that you know you can make that as a little 
a mini sermon, even in a match, every point's a building block. Even if you even if you lose the point, it's a building block. You know, in terms of okay, well, I did the right thing. You know, my daughter was playing this morning, and uh, you know she lost the point. But I said, you know what, that was a great point. You did everything right. You know, you just didn't finish the last shot. So you know, next time you finish, so it's a building point. Yep, that's great. Actually, I had to think. I had to think about that a little bit because you said this morning, but I forget. You <laughs> calling me from the from the west coast. You're in the evening. I'm in the I'm in the middle of the day. You know, the next day we're way Australia's way ahead. Yes, um, uh, that's because the time zone. Yeah. Well, um, can you share a little bit about uh, your college? Um, another experience. What you learned from that, particularly, you know, playing. You know, as a player, um, growing up in the you know juniors and a bit in college, who influenced you as a role model and why? You mentioned when you first started the game, but as a as a now as a kind of a seasoned player, uh, you traveled, you played some satellites in Europe, I think, and then you played college. What things stuck out there, and maybe some people can learn, like what role models uh, influenced you and why? Th- things like that. But I think where I was lucky, I realized very early on that I wasn't going to be a tennis player and that wasn't going to be my career, but I was going to use it as a platform to meet people and and to expose myself to the world a little bit and, and to and to develop further skill and knowledge. So I always had an ulterior motive. There was never any pressure. Uh, that's probably fairly evident in the way I hit the ball. Um, but um, <laughs> but yeah, at, at, the, at the University of Stellenbosch, I... I was lucky. I was around uh, uh, Yaroslav Hober and Philip Sodland, uh, who, um, uh, you know, Yaroslav Hober was old um, Yugoslavian champion, no longer with us, but but uh, a brilliant coach. And all the top players from Africa used to go down and work with him down in Cape Town and, and Stellenbosch. And um, so those were coaches. But I was influenced in college by coaches. Um, and obviously college College tennis in the entire is very different to in the United States, and just doesn't have the same breadth or, or, or level, nowhere near the same extent that it does. But but it's uh, it's it's competing in the varsity system we called it, and and they play against other colleges, sometimes other countries, um, and uh, and so that you know I, I with my ongoing love of the game, I was influenced then by coaches. Um, and I think they, uh, there were some lasting impressions that were left upon me. I was, I think I was attracted to that college and those coaches because they also were very focused on hitting on the wall. And I grew up hitting on the wall. People have said, think it's old fashioned, but, but, you know, there's, there's no other better player than the wall. Um, and, uh, and I think the, um, I think, yeah, so that would be the primary influence. And, and, uh, and I was lucky I coached the name of June Mel through my juniors and, and into college, and she was uh, fantastic, and she she loved the game, and and uh, and really part of her passion for the game. So it was an easy thing to fall in love with. And then I didn't know I was going to have a career in tennis after that. I was kind of using a bit of a platform, but but I just it, it I kept on following it, and it kept on following me. And and I you know, even here today, I feel the same way. So it's uh, it's uh, you know I think it's that. that Experience I had at the University of Stellenbosch was then a springboard to going over to the United States and finishing my army career, where I played tennis for the Defence Force as well. And I think I played tennis then, so I didn't have to go up to the border and hold a hold hold a gun and chase people. I think it was one of those things more when you're in the army in South Africa. There was some, you know, there was some, it was a difficult time then, and and uh, and so if you were a sports person in the army, you had some benefits. Um, and um, 
and I think I took advantage of that. But then I was very quickly, the day Afghanistan is the day I flew over to the United States, but that was always my dream. My dream was always to be in the United States and to make that my home and and uh, and to forge a career in the U.S. And, and you know, what a great country that you can do that in because there's not many places in the world you can do that. Well, it, you know, and the way you coached and did things, I mean, I was uh, displayed that appreciation because, you know, you know, playing against you or, you know, your teams or whatever, you always had class and, a, you know, sportsmanship. And um, one of the things I want to ask you about, uh, you know, some of the changes in NCAA now, what do you see the future of dubs in college, tennis, and the pros? I mean, it's yeah. it's making changes. They've made changes. Uh, I'm still not keen on some of them. But um, what do you see the role in the future? And maybe on the tour, I know they're making some changes trying trying to, uh, you know, get more players involved. But what what specifically might be some the future of that you think? Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's evolved on the tour now. The top players don't play doubles because in the major events, the grandstand, the other major events, you know, it's so taxing playing three out of five set singles. Although still, your average five set match is only about two and a quarter hours. It's not like sometimes you see these long finals. We've had some six-hour finals, but but uh, it's not in, that's not indicative of the average. But but I think the top players are. are uh, with the you know with the technology and the, and the court surface and the balls and um, and the commitment that's needed physically is is just too hard to play two events. So as a result, you've seen other players that have a specific double skill and they've learned how to serve and come in and and uh, and control their half of the court and partner well with someone. And so more and more, you've seen you know the best doubles players and the best singles players. They've been a bigger bigger difference between the two. Um, I've always been an advocate of doubles because it doubles, after all, that is the greatest thing about our sport. It's team-based. You can do it socially, um, uh, and you don't have to be someone that has to really move laterally that well. You're just going to move vertically pretty well. Um, so it's a great uh, it's a, it's a great tool to sell the, vir- the great virtues of our sport. And I also, I always you know, we proud ourselves in college days of, of winning the doubles points. We consider that the most important momentum driver. And I don't know the stats now, but there was a time where if you won the doubles point, eight in the time you won the match. So it was critical. It was uh, it's really important. I think it should always stay that way. Um, I think doubles teaches you uh, great skills for singles. Um, and then if you're becoming a doubles specialist, um, again, uh, it gives you that opportunity to be a specialist in, in, in another part of it because you may not be as good in singles. Um, so, so I think uh, uh, we we do is you know if you have the Australian Open we 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 highlight doubles in prime time. Uh, it's not an afterthought; it's a key part of our event. Uh, you know we offer we offer big prize money for it, and um, and it's it's um, you know it's a, it's a really key tank for our event. And, the Australians have a long history of playing doubles, so it's very important to them. And uh, and I, uh, when I recruited at the University of Illinois, uh, when I was there the '93, '94 season up until 2005, um, is um, I, um, you know, we looked for doubles doubles players. We because uh, because I put a lot of importance on it. No, oh, that's. Uh... Question I have is uh, later on when we talk about your uh, what your success at Illinois. But going back to the Australian, is, is that so? That's not a player. Uh, your emphasis on doubles is special to uh, the 
the AO or the Australian Open, not necessarily the, the players' union. So, in other words, uh, all the Grand Slams, they're not tra- they, they don't equally make an emphasis on, uh, on the doubles and the prize money in doubles. That can be left up to the individual slam. Yep, each set makes their own decision on how they showcase doubles and what kind of prize money they offer and, and how they put it in the schedule, uh, where they put it. You all make your complete independent decision. I, I have an affinity to doubles. I have a love of doubles. I think uh, people, people in Australia particularly like to watch doubles. Um, you know, and uh, and so we can. Uh, so doubles is relevant and is important, and uh, and it's a, it's there's big prize money on it too. So, so you know, I think uh, if, I, I think the the ITA, the Intercollegiate Tennis Association, and the NCAA, and and all the other entities, uh, you know, should not be minimizing doubles, minimizing its influence. It's it's a it's a key plank and part of our game and. And look at all the clubs out there. What most people are playing doubles; they're not playing singles. So, um, you know, don't don't lose its importance. Don't lose its significance. Well, I, I agree. Uh, particularly, like you say, it's the most popular sport within tennis, the dubs. So, um, as a coach and observer at the highest level in the juniors, collegiately or on the pros, uh, what have you seen as the signs of a player? that has what it takes to take it to the next level. So if it's junior, maybe to college. If it's college, maybe to the pros. Or um, So in other words, what would be your top five characteristics of a champion? You know, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I'll press at the beginning by saying there's a lot of research out there that says some of these characteristics are innate and that you're born with them and, and some of them are, are trained. And um, I, I recruited a lot of players over the time and I've been around some of the greats of the game and, um, and so I'd, I would probably just I would probably just talk to what commonalities I've seen there that is repeated in all the in the great athletes and and, and the great players. Um, and the first one would would be um, commitment. Um, that every everything you do, every um, um, every decision you make, uh, every ball you run for, uh, every every uh, position you hold. Every training session, it's just complete commitment, and it's just no excuse. And this would be the person who has no excuse on, um, uh, you know, on, on anything, and it's just complete commitment. I think the second would be consistency. Um, you, you, um, you know, you, everything you do, as I mentioned before, is a building block. But, but a lot of the top players I deal with now, they're very consistent in their preparation, what they do. Um, uh, you know, in their in their warm ups, their their, their, their cool downs, um, how they approach the match, and uh, and and the the type of um, uh, the type of work that they're doing in their, in their preparation, uh, but they're just very consistent, and um, and nothing breaks that consistency. Uh, the third thing, which I think key for juniors, they don't look to other people or other things. Uh, to solve their problems, they solve their problems themselves. Uh, so, you know, a bad umpire or a good umpire or your mother or your father or the balls the balls weren't good or the, the wind was too strong or the sun was in my eye, whatever it is, but there's no other reason um, other than your own, uh, your own position. And uh, you solve your own problems. The problems that you face with are your own problems. And uh, and you've got to figure them out. You've got to deal with them, and that that relates to the kind of the independence of decision making. And I think that one that's often missed. And when I was coaching, 
if a player uh, got annoyed at something else, um, you know, I'd always have a conversation with him and I said, now, what what is that something else or someone else going to do to help you? you? They don't have the racket in their hand. You know, they're not hitting the ball. Uh, they're not running after the ball. Uh, that's you. You got to figure it out. Uh, so I think that 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 that's critically important. I think the um, I think the fourth thing is uh, is the willingness to learn. Um, you know, as you go on the journey of of, uh, of commitments, consistency, and solving your own issues, is is also having a great attitude and a willingness to learn. If you're in a leadership role, it's having good empathy. If you're a good coach, it's listening to others and learning from others. And if you're a good player, knowing that somebody else out there and something else out there can make you be better. Um, and if you're willing to listen and willing to learn, uh, it's amazing what you can pick up and how you can progress. The best players are the best students of the game. And that's really important. The best players are the best students of the game. A deep understanding, of either it's history, but a deep understanding of what it, what it, what it takes you know, to be great. And probably the first and final thing, Steve, would be is the realization is the journey. Nothing happens overnight. Uh, it's a bit related to the first point I made around the commitment. But the first one would be the journey. And uh, it's a long journey. It's a hard journey. It's a tough journey. Being great at something, nobody ever puts it on a platter for anything. And everyone that's accomplished some great things, there'll be one consistent theme in that is they would have learned on that journey Every day is hard work, and uh, um, and I think if you have the general attitude that it is a journey, and and you put your building blocks in, and you just got to work your butt off, um, then you know good things happen at the end. So those would probably be my five characteristics that you find in players today as to reasons why they they successful. Well, folks, that's worth it right there. So, Craig, I really appreciate that. That's some great insight. Um, Boy, really like that. Um, segueing on to coaching, um, you know, after you began playing, uh, or after you finished uh, playing, you know, and you began your coaching career, well, now I don't want to put you on the hot seat, but now you're removed from NCAA coaching, and yep. you know, I'm sure a lot of people have asked your advice. And what I'd like to do, if if you're willing, is to be able to say, okay. Now you had a, you're a national championship coach. You're one of the elite coaches, and you know I want to kind of dig a little bit there to find out you know some of your golden nuggets for everybody, and and folks for perspective, um, you know for I want to find out Craig's philosophy, his method, his system because he went from I call it OK Illinois. In 1993, to, to national champs undefeated, 64-0 Illinois in 2003-2004. And by OK Illinois, I mean, and he mentioned this at the very beginning of the podcast, you know, they came to UC Irvine where I was coaching at the time, you know, umpteen years ago. And I don't I don't remember if we beat you guys. I think we did, but I don't remember. I could be. Uh, yeah, I think you did. Yeah, yeah but anyways. We, we, lost, we lost. We lost to everyone. So <laughs> well, there's the perspective. So, but the thing is, you know, and I think our, you know, the peak when I was coaching there, we were 16 in the country. But then some years later, you beat everybody, and you were, you were national champions. So, obviously, you had some secret sauce. I know it's hard work. It's all these things. So, 
specifically, let's go there. What would be your philosophy of coaching if you could put it in a nutshell? I know it's tough because there's a lot of things involved, but what would be a philosophy of coaching that maybe some up-and-coming coaches and some players can uh, glean from? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's much easier to talk about it upon reflection. I think I would have, in the middle thick of it, it would have been, more, would have been harder. But when I started the 93-94 season, base 94 season, uh, the team went, we played 27 dual matches. I can remember every match, if you want, I can remember every, where we were and what the outcome But we played 27 dual matches and we lost 23. It was 4 and 23. So uh, that was the start here. And I started coaching college tennis, but remember, I had no background in college tennis in the U.S. So um, I pretended I knew the difference between an SAT score and an ACT <laughs> score, and I had no idea. Um, and so, um, and I remember going to the athletic director once when I was recruiting a player from Texas, and he had an ACT score. And, and uh, I said, this guy's a genius. He's got you know, like 17 out of 20, whatever it was. And, and 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 then I said that's not high enough to get into University of Illinois. I mean, so it was it was one of you know, so I think I was fortunate in the fact that I had no I had a clean slate. I had a I, I didn't have any negative influences, and, I, and my influences were positive because I was I was there. My initial goal was there to get a PhD, and uh, and then I was offered the position on an interim basis. And then I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. I Get my my funding my my my, uh, my studies funded, which is part of the deal, and then at the same time coach the team, and I'll do it for a couple of years, and then someone else will come over, and then after a year, the athletic said, "Would you like to be the full time coach?" And, and then I said, "Does that mean I have to give it? Can give up studying? You know, still finish your PhD and and uh, and be the coach?" And so it was um it was yeah, so just that's when I just started, and then I just asked questions. Uh, I, everyone, I could, I could learn from everyone. Um, I remember at the time there was an Ohio State coach, and he said to me, he "said I don't know why you took the Illinois job. No one cares about tennis. Illinois. You'll never win there." Hmm. And I thought, "That's cool. That's cool. Just being motivated. Someone just motivated me. You know, that's great. <laughs> that's that's right. just like you're giving me a reason." And then, and then we won eight straight conference titles um, in that period, and the uh, Big Ten titles. So we became pretty quickly dominant in the Big Ten. And then we're consistently top ten, top five, and national indoor champions a few times. And then, you know, we culminated in 2003, the season being the great season of undefeated in the NCAA title. But, you know, my goal was never to win an NCAA title. The goal was never to be number one in the country. The goal was always to, whichever athletes we had on the team, to get the best out of them. And then if it happened that we won, great. If it didn't, they would walk away from the university with the life skill. They would have graduated and walked away with the life skill of, of playing. And, and my best friends now today are the players that I coached between 1993 and, and 2005, that 12-year sentence. And, uh, uh, and we've gone through, some have got married and have kids and others haven't, Others, but they've all gone on. Every single one have gone on and and, uh, and had a, a successful career in something. And I'm very proud of that. But but I think the so the biggest thing at the beginning, Steve, would be with just the, the insatiable appetite and desire to learn uh, and to listen. And uh, I was fortunate that I didn't know much, and I never claimed to ever know anything any more than anyone else because um, I didn't. And, and today I don't either. So I, I think that's, that that brings out 
I think it does bring out a certain empathy and humbleness in you, and and uh, and then people will come into your world without you forcing them into it, and that, and they will be willing to help. And particularly, I know I found out in America, is in the United States. What I loved about America is that people generally want to help, and they want to help for the right reason because they want to help, not because they want to advance their own career or advance themselves. And and I really love that about the culture in the U.S. and and I think the uh, and I, I think it's really this. My wife's American. We go back every year for for, for a full month in the summer. Um, and uh, you know our kids and we all U.S. citizens as well. So so there's, there's always deep passion for the United States. And I think I was very fortunate because I was around people. We were also in the Midwest, cornfields. You know, the, mm-hmm. you could smell the pig farms every day when you were training. It was, it was great. We had great home court advantage because. Most of the visiting teams couldn't stand the smell of the pig farm, um, <laughs> and uh, and that uh, it was indoor. You know, no team really outside of uh, Stanford, which was dominant at the time, and Coach School. I mean, I hope you talk to him often because he's a real genius. Um, but uh, Coach School and and um, at Stanford, and then UCLA, Billy Martin, and, and a few Smith and remarkable things at USC, and um, you know, and in Florida. Uh, Georgia, uh, those were teams that dominated uh, college tennis, and not not I think there's maybe once in the fifties, Notre Dame maybe once. So uh, outside of that, up up until '93, there weren't anybody else that really won the NCAAs other than those teams, maybe once or twice a few others. But um, so I was motivated by breaking the mold and being a Northern school and being a team of Americans. I I believed in coaching American players and. And recruiting American players, and uh, and I and I set that target. And if we happened to win at the end, great. If we didn't, great as well, because you know we were going on this magnificent journey together, and the lessons were in the journey, uh, weren't in the outcome of the journey. Um, and I and so my attitude was: you know, listen, learn, and uh, and know you're on the journey. So have the patience, uh, put the building blocks in place, focus on athlete and player development. Uh, that's all you do. Is every single day, how can you make this forehand better? How can you make this backhand better? How can you make the serve better? Never, every single day, we would work on someone's strength. Never forget the strength. And we spend more time working on the player's strength than we do on the weaknesses. Um, and I think that was some of our keys. And then, you know, I believed in uh, finishing off points when you could. So I generally recruited players that had big serves and could volley and, and were willing to take some risks finish off points because I I felt that uh, college tennis became a bit too much of a grind fest and, and that wasn't a conducive game to pro tennis. So that's why Rajiv Ram and Kevin Anderson uh, were smacking balls for you. We see uh, obviously, obviously Kevin Anderson out there with the heat, bringing the heat all the time. So being able to finish points. Yep. That's right. That's right. I think uh, Kevin was an enigma because he's a great player and for a person had a big service at the beginning, he preferred to stay back. But his game is developed brilliantly all around now. He can do anything at the net. He can do anything in the middle of the court, in the back of the court. He's got great defense. I mean, you don't every day get to a Grand Slam final and be top 10 consistency in the world. And, and I'm very proud of what he's done. But he deserves it more than anyone because he and he alone he does, lives it every single minute of the day. Mm. That's great. You, uh, you, you actually... Uh 
touched on numerous questions. For example, I was going to ask, what were the essentials you focused on every day? You touched on that. It's every day, you know, uh, you focus on the strengths, you develop the players. It's about the journey, you know, and, uh, you know, developing players, you know, the best they can possibly be. Um, you mentioned on the recruiting, you said you like to go U.S. players. I mean, Kevin's not U.S., but... You know, that's really tough these days, and I'm just, you know, maybe speak to that because, uh, for example, you uh, you know, I've I've had podcasts with pretty much all those teams you mentioned, uh, you know, all the coaches because they're all mm-hmm. friends, uh, Georgia and Stanford and uh, et cetera, um, and USC. And uh, so one of the things is is that, you know, obviously, if, you know, you're, you're a foreign player, you know, a foreign coach, and what did yeah. you see in recruiting Americans? Because a lot of times what we see now is you get foreign coaches recruiting foreign players and it becomes like a pipeline. Um, you know, and I think the the face of college tennis has changed dramatically, obviously. Um, you know, now there's, you know, then it was it was you first and then it was uh, then it was Baylor and then, you know, and Virginia. And you so you get a couple of different looks uh, this year, Wake Forest for the first yeah. time. So um, maybe. Uh, you know, speak to that because a lot of people, you know, wish that, you know, uh, Americans would be more involved in, in the tennis. But um, because I know, like, it's it's tough in some places because, you know, uh, the better Americans want to go to different schools. And so, you know, teams feel they need to get, uh, you know, the foreign players to come. But maybe you can speak that from that experience because you were in a kind of a middle of nowhere, but maybe it was a different time. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe share that dichotomy. Yeah. That, Dynamic. Yeah, I think Steve, look, I think Steve, everyone, everyone's their own. I, I never try and impart what what I did on someone else. So uh, uh-huh. say that front, but yep. but um, but we won the NCAA in 2003 as an all-American team. Uh, we had no finals on our team in 2003, and uh, we won it as an all-American team. And uh, and we had players uh, that were on that team during that year that were walk-ons from Illinois. Um, so I, I believed in, in recruiting American players. Occasionally, we would have a, have a player with Jerry Totes from Canada and Kev, uh, Kev Anderson from South Africa, and that was a connection I had since he was a kid, and, and that, that was always going to be an opportunity. And, um, and um, I'm happy we could find a pathway, and he's been a great ambassador from the University of Illinois. He's American. He's married to Kelsey, a, doctor, um, a golfer from the University of Illinois. And so, you know, he's... He's someone that I looked at differently, and and it has. He's, he's now America's his home, and he'll give back to to the U, to the U.S. as a, as a U.S. citizen. So, yeah. so I think uh, I I think uh, so. My my approach was yes, some American players, um, and yes, uh, try and get a few from your local state, your local town. We had every year we had a player from Champaign, Illinois, um, and uh, on the team, and uh, and they may not have been as good, but we gave them a good shot. And uh, and we had a, couple, a few times a player from Champaign, Illinois, that didn't play in the Nationals, but uh, played on our team when we were you know, top five, top top five in, in the country. So, so I believed in giving people opportunity, and I just believed in doing it with American players first. I just felt that an American player, and this is look, I'm foreign myself, so so no one can accuse me of being biased the other way. <laughs> but uh, um, but I uh, um, I just believed. That, since the age of six months, players that grow up in the U.S. are, are taught that an NCAA title is like the most unbelievable thing in the world. And I, I, I maybe I'm wrong in this, but I just felt that when it would come to the crunch, uh, it may just mean something that you're unable to teach or get from anyone. Right. Uh, 
So, so I just I just felt that I yeah I don't know I was going to say I don't know if I was right, but I was right in the team that won the NCAAs in 2003 from a from the University of Illinois. And Brad Dance has gone on and done it, continued doing a great job with the program. Um, and I think the um, yeah I I I just believe that that was my philosophy. And some people can say it was wrong. Some people say it's right. It works for us. And and I I do. I also do believe that I will give my opinion. Um, I also do believe that uh, that college coaches across the U.S. can do a better job giving opportunities to American players, not at the expense of foreign foreign players. Because I also don't believe that they should be barred from having foreign players. Right. So it's an it's an open market and an opportunity, and and there's some magnificent players that have come from other countries that have come back and contributed as coaches. And, and made a big difference. But then there's also players that have come and, you know, been given a scholarship for the four years and have gone back and, and hasn't been much loop around or support of the college that helped them. Or, um, and that's more likely to happen when you do that. But, but, I, but I, look, I, my view is if I, if I was to do it again starting tomorrow, I'd start the same philosophy, same approach, may never win a national title, um, although I believe we would. And, um, and I think we, uh, uh, we would, uh, yeah, I don't know if I would change much. I'd have that same view. Um, and I, I it, it just, it, it was at the time a bit controversial because I used to be a bit outspoken about it, but that was because mm. we were winning. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I just think we just got to be careful. That's all. Right. It's just right. not, not having the dial go too much the wrong way. Right, right. Yeah, I remember those discussions at the National Championship Coaches Meetings. Um, so I got a question for you before we move on to talk about the leadership and the Australian Open, um, I, and I uh, do want to spend a good chunk on that, um, so I do want to uh, just briefly ask you, though, because you are through and through um, you know, a sportsman, and the teams you had are sportsmen, and you see a lot of these you know teams out there, and they're just great, great uh, sportsmen. And one of the things that, um, you know, it's interesting in doing some writing and, and uh, you know, a lot of reading, but uh, particularly in some writing, you know, uh, there was a former f- uh, football player, uh, Joe Ehrman, and he has a book called Inside Out Coaching. But he, he addresses this issue as well. You know, the true sense of competition from the Latin competere, it's the whole idea is you and I play each other. And this is what's so awesome when you watch these amazing five-set classic grinders and the two guys or gals at the end just really they usually say you know what he or she brings the best out of me and that's why I love this this competition and that's how it's supposed to be it's supposed to be you and I we hope each other plays our absolute best we get out there and we have a slugfest and afterwards obviously we want to win um, but you know we're going to throw the kitchen sink at each other and that's the best possible scenario you know the the issue is and and this and you're probably aware of this it's been going kind of viral on the twi- uh, on the twi- twitter is this you know issue of bad line calls and calls and I only want to touch on this cuz I want to get your opinion yeah. it seems like it's becoming worse and even Steve Johnson and some other people chimed in and Brad Gilbert and it's just uh it's it's becoming a problem and I I've seen it in some other conferences etc I won't name mention, mention names or anything but yeah. um where, as as coaches and leaders, um, you know, as parents and as we're bringing this thing up, maybe give some advice or some observations, um, because in the pros you have line, you know, lines people, but, you know, do we have, to, should we try and push, 
because obviously it's not coming from parents and coaches when the, when these guys are doing this or gals are doing this is do we try and get more lines judges at tournaments for youth or or what are some solutions to help get the the sportsmanship level up and you know like little mo they do an amazing job uh carol wyman at the little mo internationals i mean the sportsmanship level is off the charts they intentionally reward reward it i have a tournament i run and i intentionally give a trophy for sportsmanship so maybe those are some things but what are some observations or maybe ideas you might have just to uh, speak to people out there and say, look, you know, this is really a sportsmanship uh, sport. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, that's a, that's a big topic. That one because okay. there's different opinions on it. And but I, I can tell you, there's there's simple solution. Um, tennis is interesting. Tennis is um, it's the most officiated sport because uh, you know you have two competitors, two athletes, and it might be seven or something like nine or more officials on the court. Um, but it's also the least officiated sport because you can go and play a junior event and there's uh, one referee and maybe a couple of chair umpires and they just, they're just walking around the grounds and everyone's self-officiating. So it's got its challenges in that. It's sometimes not economically viable to have someone on every line. Um, but I don't think, my view is, I don't think any match should be played um, at any decide which levels without that's an official match without a chair umpire, so that should be the standard. That's about the investment in our sport. Um, and then when you get to the collegiate level um, and uh, and the professional level, uh, you shouldn't play any match without a minimum a minimal crew. Because I just think it's going to be really hard. You can have the greatest sportsman. You mentioned Steve Johnson. He's the greatest sportsman, and in my view, one of the greatest players. Every one of those college players ever, and and, uh, and I look forward to seeing him every time I'm on the tour because there's a there's a man who's like is the you know he's an he, he's the model for for would be for my kids is, is how you want them to be and and I think that uh, so having more role models like that um, you know the the Bryans come to mind as well that having having um, that Bob and Mike and having more role models where um, you know, it's an easy aspiration to see, and there's great fairness in the play. But a lot of that comes from the from the parents, the people around those athletes too. So, so the first thing I'd say is that uh, you know, don't chance it. Is get the right get the right number of officials. Definitely sitting in the chairs at least one on the court. So you should never play a match without one on the court. And then uh, as the stakes are getting higher, you know, you may have to have a minimal crew of three to five potentially on each court. You just you work out how you do that. Um, that in itself starts to take away the the, the attempt to cheat. Um, but, you know, the, the cheating takes on different forms. not only in line calling and now it's match fixing and, uh, and illegal gambling on tennis. And, um, and we're trying to get on top of that as, as a global sport. But... And 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 and, and drugs, anti-doping. So I think the stakes have just changed where people try and find any angle. I don't think you'll ever change. Uh, people still trying to find an angle, right? Um, but you should you should change how you deliver it. Well, um, and I and I think that's important. Yeah, and I agree one hundred percent on the. And this is interesting because you know with juniors, I think you know it's 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 funny too. I mean, I'm I'm personally of the opinion that you know we need to do some deep deep uh, thinking and some changes because think about a sport where no coach or parent is allowed or you know to coach their child in the middle of a competition soccer 
football, baseball, mm-hmm. basketball. That's how you learn is immediate mm-hmm. immediate feedback. Yet, yet, yeah. yet in tennis, yeah. we can't do that. And the same thing with yeah. officiating. Can you imagine a soccer game out there with no officials? And so it's, you know, I, I agree 100%. And the problem is, is a lot of people want to make money. So they're more transactional in how they deal with tennis rather than transformational. And if they were transformational yeah. about it, they would say, you know what? I don't need to make $10,000 on this tournament. I can actually pay, you don't have to pay, you know, you know, it, uh, certain officials. We could pay, you know, court monitors, yeah. but make sure there's, so I, I love your advice on that in terms of, uh, you know, even for juniors having a, having a chair umpire or somebody on the court to kind of keep the match going and teach them actually how to do some things. Correct. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, you mentioned a few things. I think tennis, a few things I think you need to happen in tennis, get rid of the no less rule, you know, yep. because that's cheating too. Just get rid of it. Every yep. ball that ba- hits the net and bounces over, it's in play. You've got to go and figure out a way how to get it. Agree 100%. So get rid of that um, and get, allow coaching. Absolutely, I agree with you. Allow coaching in the court at the right time from the right position. Mm-hmm. So you have a coaching box or something because coaching is teaching, coaching is learning, coaching is feedback. Um, and then th- then you can have registered coaches do it. So it can't just be any random parent. It's got to be a registered coach that does it. Um, or, I mean, that, that's probably a big enough to crack, crack, but I think that should be allowed. And then no junior match, no sanctioned junior match should be played without someone sitting on the court. And, um, and we all struggle with in, with the, the cost of investing in that, but but we've tried to do, do that in Australia more and more and more, and getting closer to it being being that way. Um, and uh, and then when the stakes get high, you've got pro circuit events and and uh, you know college tennis events, then you probably need a bit, bit more of a one person crew. Um, and you know what, we can afford it because we can afford uh, our, our sports are. It, 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 it's, a, it's a sport that's got resources, and it's just where we put our resources. It's a priority decision. Right. No, 100, I 100% agree. That's great. Um, you know, my son asked me one time, if there's one place, if I had all the money and I could live somewhere for a month, where would it be? Um, and my response is easy. I would lo- want to live. I've uh, been, you know, I, I spent some time in Australia, uh, did some recruiting, and also uh, uh competed in martial arts contests but anyway uh the the thing was i said you know australia that's a no-brainer i'd be there for a month uh, a little bit before and after the australian open and uh, so i want to segue into this because um you know the australian people are just amazing with sports they're great sports fanatics they're great sports and you um, went from college you know from playing uh, playing college, college coaching to there. Did you ever think or ever dream that you'd be leading one of the most historic tennis nations in their tennis development? No, because I'm, I'm not Australian. So no. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. and, 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 and also because I did the same thing you did. I came for a month and stayed for 10 years. So it's like, uh, um, it's, uh, you know, no, I was given, I, look, I was fortunate. I was coaching at the University of Illinois. I was approached by a headhunter where I'd be interested in a role down here to come and run their whole performance program, their performance plan. I thought, that sounds great. And yeah. I'll give it a go. And, and the CEO at the time was a former college player. Again, that's why college tennis is magnificent. Steve Wood, he played for, at Louisiana. Um, and uh, LSU, Louisiana State. And, um, and uh, so I was recruited to come down here. Spent a bit of time, a month, you know, a year later, I was running all of tennis, and then, and then a year later, running the tournaments, and and then a few years later, being the CEO. So, so I've been lucky. I've progressed in the organisation, but I don't have any 
that was on my my bucket list or my plan list or whatever that that went along with my philosophy of just every day do something, treat people like you want to be treated, and remember you meet the same people on the way up as you do on the way down. So you know if you treat them like crap, then you're going to be treated the same way on the way down. So uh, you know just live that philosophy and and um, and you know, and then, and then being in this environment, it's been fun, and the sport's really grown. It's the most participated sport in the country. Uh, it's number one uh, as far as participation goes. It's it's the most watched sport in the country. It means a lot to Australians. So they've got a deep history. The golden era in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, every second Grand Slam was won by an Australian. Um, you know, they they really dominated the world in tennis. Not recently. Uh, but the world in tennis has changed, and, and no one is dominated anymore. The U.S. doesn't, like it should. And I've always felt that if the U.S. is on fire and they're dominating in the men's and women, then the global sport is really healthy. So, um, so I think um, the yeah, it's just there's many more nations competing, and um, and I and, I, and I've been lucky. It's been been fun to transform the event. Uh, I, I come from a playing focused background with playing and coaching, so. We invest in the player experience for this to be their favorite place to play, the players. Um, and we get a million people come through our gate each year. And it's fantastic that we're able to have that kind of number. Um, and uh, that's grown substantially. That was never the case. And, and we've spent a billion dollars on redeveloping the, the precinct. We've got three stadiums with retractable roofs. And, you know, we can get 85,000 people in a, in a, in a day um, through the stadium and still comfortable. And, and the biggest thing, we're right next to the city, and the sun's shining that time of the year, normally in the U.S. and well, the Northern Hemisphere, it's the middle of winter, so people are quite happy to come down and chat <laughs> and enjoy a bit of sun. Yeah. Well, my, my, my question was a bit rhetorical because I had a feeling you're going to say, well, you know, A, you're from South Africa, but B, you know, here's the thing is the kids out there, young people out there, even, you know, uh, post-college is uh, – you know, I think you hit on it is, you know, you don't know. You're just doing your thing and you and you just every day you just give your best and you never know. And particularly with tennis, it's a great networking sport. You get to meet people and you kind of almost yeah. never know. And so a lot of people, I think, set their goals and they're, you know, they don't realize that as they're going through some of these, uh, whether playing and training and even if they're on tour and they got practice partners, I mean, a lot of these things can segue into life changing opportunities like it did for yourself. So maybe that's a great lesson for the youth out there. That's right. I mean, you, you, the one, uh, control the things you can control. You can control your efforts. You can control your attitude. You can control how you treat people, and particularly your parents, um, your mom and your dad, and your family, and and, and those close to you. Um, you can control uh, the commitments you make. You can control how early you wake up in the morning, what time you go to bed, how much homework you do, what food you eat, how much you train. You can control all that. So you control that really well, and you do that on Monday, and you do that on Tuesday, and then you do it on Wednesday, maybe take a break on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and you do it every day, and all of a sudden it goes from being seven days a week to 30 days a month to 365 days a year to, you know, five years. And then you wake up one morning and it's like, geez, how great is my life? Everything's going my way. Um, I'm having success over here. I'm having success over here. Everyone tells me how great I am. Uh, everyone wants to be like me. How did that happen? But most people cannot see into that future because that takes work, effort, and commitment, and 
at Hard. Right. Um, and that goes back to what you said, the and, top five things. The first thing was uh, that con- that uh, commitment and then consistency, right. et cetera. So. so, And that's right. I think, you know, people often, I've got, you know, the, the guys that run the U.S. Open, the U.S. The US Open, they do a magnificent job. And I, and I, they laughed at me. They said, I went from running a, uh, a, a, a challenger in Champaign, Illinois, a USDA challenger in Champaign, Illinois, to, uh, to, to Grand Slam. Um, and I didn't have much in between. And, uh, and, I, and people said, these, how do you do that? I said, you know, the principles are exactly the same. It's just the scope is bigger. There's more officials, there's more people, more money, uh, more players, uh, and, uh, but the principle is exactly the same. So it doesn't matter the size of what you're doing. The principle is the same. You can be running a company of one person and running a company of 1,000 people. Like I run a company of about 500 people. Um, and it's the same. Uh, it's the same principles of how you approach things. So, uh, so it's not, as I said at the beginning, I don't have any secret sauce because uh, or secret. If if I did, everyone would, would be doing it. But uh, um, it's uh, you know it, 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 it's 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 straightforward stuff. But it's not easy. It doesn't sound easy. You you got to make sacrifices. I didn't mention that earlier on, and I've I've had to do that. I've you know come to a different country. Uh, you know, you. I've lived on three different continents. I've been lucky, but I, I haven't been afraid to pick up. I haven't been afraid to take risks. I, I run this business uh, with a great team. I think like I recruited players that were great. So, you know, the coach is only as good as their players, and um, and a and a, and a CEO is only as good as their, as their team. And uh, and and so I think I've recruited a great team. They do a fantastic job. We all. We all have a good time. We all know that we're we're custodians of the sport and this event for this period of time. And and one of our key company values is uh, is humility. Um, as we have the, um, I know I can't swear on your thing, but we have the no a <laughs> policy. So uh, um, gotcha. But uh, yeah, but it's just it's just you know I think it's so it's not it's not uh, it's not it's not it's not easy, but uh, but it's possible. Well, I was going to ask about your philosophy of leading Tennis Australia, and you just mentioned it. And then the key first thing you said was humility. And I know you've mentioned before on a, on a particular uh, YouTube I mentioned, you mentioned teamwork, loyalty, excellence, and communication. And I'd like to maybe talk a few more minutes about that if you have time, because I'd like to talk about the humility. And, and um, you mentioned something I think that was really key on this. And let me just point out a few things and um, that I've uh, – uh, spend some time, uh, some writing on, um, as well as uh, uh, some just some research. But, and I want to have you chime in because I think you did you by mentioning that. I think humility is something that's understood misunderstood a lot of times. Like, how can a competitive athlete or somebody vying for a job still be humble? You've obviously done a lot. You're a great leader. So how does a great leader be humble? And one of the things um, we talk about is what's called servant leadership. And some of the key components of servant leadership, which I think you exemplify in how you run the Australian Open and Tennis Australia, is listening. Because in listening, we're rooted in humility as it engages others, what they say and they feel, not imposing our view. 
Second, secondly, is we have an intentional self-assessment regarding our leadership style. You know, Martin, uh, Martin Luther King said, you know, set yourself earnestly to discover what you are made to do and then give yourself passionately to the doing of it. In other words, he understood. He's saying, look, if you understand who you are and what you're made for, go for it. And the, the third thing is the self-assessment of conflict management. You know, being aware of the differences of people and also allowing those differences and actually surrounding yourself with people so you can grow in those things. Now, that's way easier said than done, but I think you've done it. And I heard you mention it before because you actually mentioned you actually have a time. I think it's once a month or every so often. It's a regular thing where people can sit and give their opinions, even if they're diverse. And you have this open discussion, and I'd, it'd be great to have you share kind of on your philosophy and maybe anything I mentioned kind of jump in there, but also talk about this communication uh, you have with your with, with your employees. Yeah, I, you know, Steve, again, it's, a, it's, a, it's a journey you go on and learn things, and, and I like to listen. I like to get my hands dirty. Uh, you know, I like to be in the thick of things. Um, I, 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 I'm fine with making mistakes, and... I'm fine with admitting if I've made a mistake and moving on. Um, and uh, but we do, as an organisation, we get together once a month for quite a while, for a couple of hours, and and I just throw it open and I say to the group, you know, 500 employees, look, we're having these are the challenges that we're having. We uh, and I'm completely transparent, and you you um, uh, it becomes a raw conversation. I say, look, how are you guys feeling, and and what what are the things you think we're not doing well, and uh, what are the you know, um, what are what are the things we can do better? We start having an open conversation. It's great. You know, we get 100% attendance at those events because everyone feels like it's a, it's a highlight for them. People come back from their holidays and have an opportunity to have some input to to the future of the company. And then, and then we do engagement surveys. So we're constantly asking feedback from the team and like, what can we do better? And and there's, I mean, a lot of things you don't do well that you you find ways to improve. But we always have the attitude that we want to hear from you. And then if it if it's if it's you know everyone's everyone's feedback is going to be acted on, and some of it may be acted on more in policy and, and future direction uh, as well. So our approach has been to to run the business with with that kind of uh, you know that kind of direction. But that means that then you also have to recruit people that can can be that way. And and so from a leadership point of view, I I um, I. I want to I want to get the best out of our people, and uh, so I want them. My job is just to create pathways for success. Uh, my job is not to be the success. That's a big difference. I'm just sitting on top of the tree, and I'm sitting on top of the tree because I've got to steer the ship. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, the ship's going to have its own personality and its own character and its own and its own position, and 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 uh, and, and it's going to be made up of people that. All have ambitions, and and so my job is to is to create is to find that pathway for success, and I think, um, and that's where we've been lucky. Um, now, every you know, tomorrow could change. You could have another global financial crisis, and you know you could you could have a uh, you know a horrible a horrible terrorist events. You could have a security breach. You could have you know a number of things can happen in today's world that could completely change, turn the business on its head. Um, but what what none of those things can do is change the core um, attitude uh, and the core approach to being of a business, and and it's in the personality of the people and in the attitude of the people. And it's the same thing developing a tennis player and becoming a tennis player is that 
Um, it's amazing how many great things go your way if you just do good things. Um, and I, it's, it's, uh, and I can't say it enough to people is that, uh, uh, and you hear it from your parents and, and your mentors and all that, but it, it's, uh, it's true. So, so I think our, our philosophy is just generally constant feedback, learning, uh, listen, um, and, and then make sure we act on it. It's not just an exercise and, and, you know, and just kind of going through the motions. But right. I, I think I'm proud. I mean, that, Tennis Australia and the Australian Open is, uh, I've been the CEO for four and a half years now. It's been great. In that period, we've more than doubled the revenue, uh, tripled the profits, um, and uh, are the leader in, in broadcast viewership globally. We're helped by the fact that China's in our time zone. We always qualify that. And, uh, and are the leader in visitation as well, people coming to the gate and, and redevelopment and, uh, of, the, you know, of the venue. And, and so, so we're, I'm proud of the, what we've accomplished here, but there's still a lot more work to be done. Well, that's actually one of my questions. Is uh, yeah, you mentioned that is what are you uniquely to the uh, to the Australian Open and and what you do there aside from maybe the profit and the revenue, et cetera, and the and the you know increase in fans and uh, what would you say is unique to the Australian Open um, that you as a as a as a leader and everybody involved would take pride in? That's possibly um, I different. Think, I think if, uh, being a servant to our customer. Um, and our customer is the players. Uh, so to becoming a player's favorite, our customer is the fan, becoming a fan's favorite, and our customer are the fans sitting at home watching on TV and becoming their favorite. So those are our three main customer or consumer groups, players, the on-site fan and the off-site fan. And uh, it's delivering for them an experience that they that they want and they want to have more of. Um, so I think that becomes our, you know, so we do a lot of customer service training and, and do a lot of recruiting the right people and, 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 you know, I always say when it comes to running a company that, you know, just uh, take your time hiring because uh, um, it's, a, it, it, it's a lot harder firing. Uh, mm. So, um, you know, get, get the right, get the right people in the organization and, um, and so we do spend a lot of time and effort on that and, and invest in that. So, just I think that's our point of difference from a from an event point of difference to other events and other things. You know, we we located right next to the city. Uh, the sun's shining. <laughs> the trends are fr- friendly, welcoming nation. Yeah. They love their sport. I mean, I'm living in I'm in Disney, my own version of Disney World. I'm sitting here talking to you I'm on the eighth floor of a completely glass windowed building, floor ceiling glass. Uh, overlooking, I, I'm, uh, you know, a couple hundred feet away from the roof of Rod Laver Arena, and a few hundred feet away from Margaret Court Arena. Got 50 courts next to me. I look over my shoulder, um, and tomorrow night, if I want to go to a, a concert, I can. I can walk across the street and go to a football game, go to a rugby game, go to a basketball game, uh, all here in the precinct, and I can catch a train and be at home in 20 minutes time we'll get in my car and take 30 minutes so it's a it's dream world it's like it's like <laughs> my own version my, my own version of disney yeah, you can't go wrong a little so, a little different from where i'm so, sitting that's awesome that's fantastic yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well you know i i, I do want your uh, thoughts on this you know 
this humility topic is on, in today's world of self-promotion, and I just got a couple more questions, is self-promotion, you know, whether we're coaches or, you know, trying to get that job or even, you know, uh, so I guess two parts of this is, you know, the self-promotion when we, you know, we got LinkedIn, we have Twitter, we have Facebook and inflated resumes and people yeah. are trying to promote themselves. How do you balance that, you know, with the humility and being, you know, uh, just, you know, as you're, as you've done or other people you're looking for to work for you, et cetera. How do you balance that? You know, I, I think, I think the toughest people are going to experience it are our kids. I think it's going to be easier. It's going to actually be harder because prioritizing in your life with the demands that you have because of social, social media, uh, it's just going to get worse. Um, but I also think we have an opportunity to become better decision makers because we're going to have to learn to prioritize. Um, yeah, it's it's 24-7. The time zone doesn't help us down here. Um, and uh, and social media make it 24-7. I, I always say at the end of the day, there's one thing when you go to sleep at night, you put your head on your pillow, there's one thing you have and you guard it with your life and that's your reputation. Don't do anything to stuff up to mess up your reputation. And uh, now you, some things may unfortunately happen to you that are out of your control, and that is unfortunate. And, and then you hope that you have a group of friends and a group of, uh, of colleagues that can help you with that. But, uh, but do the right thing as often as you can. Uh, communicate openly. Be kind. Be gentle. Uh, and, but be ambitious. And you can be all those things and be ambitious, uh, but never at the expense of another human being. Um, uh, you know, and I think that's that's what's really important in this. And there is a lot of self-promotion. You just go and read some people, you know, people writing their own LinkedIn or their own Wikipedia webpage, um, and people spending. There's other people that have businesses doing that for people, and uh, and there is a lot of promotion out there. At the end of the day, it's going to come down to your reputation. But it doesn't matter about how much self-promotion you do. It come down to your reputation. And uh, and what you've done consistently over a period of time, um, and uh, that will always always win over, no matter how much challenges we have with the technology and the innovations around media. That we struggle with it um, every single day, running a global event, uh, whether it be security concerns or you know, players having issues, and, and nothing is contained anymore. Everything is public, and mm-hmm. everything is adjudic- adjudicated on in the public arena. And that leads to all the horrible behaviors of human beings, like bullying and harassment, and and uh, and all those others. But uh, but I think we always used to have that. They just not as publicly prevalent. Pre- they were just weren't as publicly prevalent then than they are now. Right. Um, so we just got to manage it, and we just got to be. You know, it's it's a. It's, uh, uh, you know, you remember. I think that's why we lost you, Steve, because I, <laughs> I forget now. You were. I was martial arts. I think I was nervous about facing you <laughs> as if we beat you. So, um, but 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 I, I remember being around you. The team doing a good job with your team. With respect, your players looked people in the eye and shook their hands and, uh, and uh, lost fairly, won fairly. Uh, and I think that you know that's what it's all about. And and that's what we're going to we're going to teach our kids. It's not old fashioned. Uh, that is the. Um, that's what's determining the opportunities of today. Um, and uh, no one, as I mentioned at the beginning, no one gets anywhere with taking shortcuts ever. It's only a temporary 
temporary the other the temporary solution, take a shortcut, yeah. and maybe temporary success. Sustainable success, forget it. And there's not one leader in this world, there's not one successful person, there's not one great tennis player that has got there through shortcuts. So uh, if you're taking shortcuts, stop it. Yeah. You're going to get that way. That's great. So, Craig, last question. What's next for you in uh, uh, Tennis Australia? Anything uh, that the world might want to know that, uh, or is, is some things hush-hush? But what's, what's, what's new on the horizon? What's the next vision or goal for Tennis Australia? Oh, that's a good, great question. Uh, I actually asked that the other day. And, and uh, um, I've been the CEO here for four and a half years. It's been a magnificent journey. I'm, I'm not a believer in staying in the same place for life. Uh, that's just my view. Others have different views, which is fine. Um, I, I, I think it's, it, it's good to get some change. You, although you can be at the same place and reinvent yourself in that, I think if you do that, then that's fine. You know, you go on different journeys. Um, uh, I, I like challenges. I like to see things grow. I like to, I like to turn things around. And uh, I like. Um, I, I don't think I'm, I'm not. I don't think I don't think I'm scared of anything. I, um, they, yeah. So I'm not too sure. I think. Uh, Maybe I'm, I maybe have a fear of failure. I'm not, I'm not sure. I've never really quantified that. But <laughs> but uh, but um, but yeah. So so what's next? What's next is really continue to grow this business and and uh, and make this. We have an ambition to be the greatest sports and entertainment event in the world. And, you know, we're starting to have that kind of impact in the Southeast Asia and, and the Asian region, India and, and Japan and China and and uh, and we're um, you know and I think we're doing. We're doing partnerships with with major bands for music festival and partnerships with major major chefs for food and, and uh, with Disney with, with kids and kids and families and so just really growing that footprint and making it really relevant. It's Australia's largest event and and it's the most uh, economically um, important to to the country. So it, it holds a special place in, in this country. It's harder because country is only 23 million people, so it's small, but. But um, yeah, so what's next is uh, I don't know, I've thought about things. I I was considering signing up to join Richard Branson's Virgin Galactica and <laughs> being one of the passengers to space to outer space. But uh, I'm not too sure if that's how that's going to sit. But I, you know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I think any job or any role where I can make a difference would be would be appealing. And currently, I'm I'm happy because I'm in one that is making a difference. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's that's a big uh, component of success, uh, using your gifts to make a big difference. That's awesome. Well, I have a quote of the day here, folks out there. Um, is your normal inspiring? So what you do out on the court, the way you train, the way you play, uh, do they stop and look regardless of your level? Would they be inspired by your passion, your grit, your sportsmanship, and your determination on the court? So just a thought. Is your normal inspiring? Craig, it's been absolutely a pleasure. I just, it's so fun to reconnect with uh, people. And man, you know, the technology these days, just be able to sit and chat. You're in a glass building way above the, uh, the, the beautiful tennis courts. And uh, it's just neat to be able to do that. And so I really appreciate you taking time out of your bu- uh, busy day just to visit and share with people. That, so thanks a lot. No, thanks, Steve. It's good to reconnect, and I, I miss my my friends in the U.S. And it's always great to see them. Tennis is a is a small community that's got some great friendships, and I have lifelong friends from it. And uh, and some of the coaches I coached against, I remember we played Stanford for the first time, and, and Bob and Mike Bryan and Ryan Walters and Paul Goldstein and 
I think Goldie was number four on the team at that time. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, th- th- those were some of the names. And, uh, and I remember all I watched, I said to our team, I said, just go out there and do the best you can. And we're not going to win one set, but uh, do the best you can. Um, and uh, I'm just going to sit there and watch Dick Gould's coach because I'm going to learn how to coach. And you guys are going to learn how to get, not to get beat too badly. And then we'll, we'll do better next time. So, uh, um, so I've been lucky to be around, uh, you know, around people at an era and a time when, uh, when it was really good and, and healthy. And, and I think there's some great people out there. And, and college tennis, uh, there's no better pathway in, in tennis, in, in my view. And I've been a big promoter of it. And coming back here to, to, to well, coming down to Australia, that college tennis wasn't respected enough. And we've changed that now. There's a couple hundred players, uh, both boys and girls, men and women, that are playing college tennis as Australians in the U.S. So, so we think it's a, it's a critical part of the pathway of success for Australian players. So, so it's great. So I encourage everyone, look, I appreciate the work you do and, and, and it's good to reconnect and chat. And it's always nice to reflect and, and uh, uh, you, know, you can always learn something from someone. So I appreciate that time. Well, I appreciate that. If you can just hang on just for a sec. Folks, uh, you've been listening to the Coach Steve Clark PhD Show with Craig Tiley, CEO of Tennis Australia and Director of the Australian Open. Be sure to tune in next time. Also, like and share the podcast and my website at uh, CoachSteveClarkPhD.com. And you can also email me at Steve at CoachSteveClarkPhD.com with your comments and questions. Um, The introduction and ending music is Let It Rip by Mike and Bob Bryan, uh, who Craig knows quite well. And the uh, intro narration is by the legendary tennis pied piper himself, their father, Wayne Bryan. And check out the Bryan Brothers Foundation on my website as well. Um, Additional thanks to our sponsor, Aero Concrete and Asphalt Specialties. So thanks again for tuning in. And until next time, let it rip.